Makers of Sport Podcast, Episode 88, with Ricardo Crespo. And welcome to episode 88 of the Makers of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Adam Martin, at T. Adam Martin on Twitter. Are you all ready to get smarter today? You may want to take some notes for today's guests and save this podcast for quick reference because I guarantee you're going to want to go back and listen. I'm extremely excited to introduce you to this branding genius whom I first met at MLC Connect in the summer of 2014. I was absolutely stunned by his presentation, his methodologies on design leadership and the creative business as well as his ability to inspire. He's an extreme sports athlete, mixed martial artist, and a world-class creative. If you've Googled him like I did, you probably won't find a lot, but he prefers it that way and he flies under the radar humbly working behind the scenes with brands as big as Nike, where he is one of the rare folks to have direct access to the Innovation Kitchen and a seat at the table with Mark Parker. This episode's guest has also held creative positions at iconic Mad Men-esque advertising agencies such as Saatchi and Saatchi, McCann Erickson, and Shiat Day, as well as being a global creative executive for Mattel, the notable toy company, and 20th Century Fox, where he worked on the movie Avatar. Today, he heads up his own creative agency on Los Angeles as Chief Creative Officer of 13, where he works to intelligently provoke and deliver on brands' promises through his thought leadership. He's a sought-after keynote speaker and a great, great dude. Please welcome Ricardo Crespo. What's up, my man? Hey, hey, Adam. What's going on? Thanks for the kind invite. What What an absolute honor. It's a privilege. Yeah, man. No problem. So I, I obviously do research before each of these and uh man a three-time canadian bmx champion that's incredible oh man but <laughs> yeah i love hearing that because there, there's there's a hilarious story about that but uh i gotta tell you that that intro i love it i love it because it's so it's so like hollywood but that's the kind of intro like that if i'm just gonna record that and send that to my mom and dad and say <laughs> okay this is what your son does for a living right that's awesome. yeah <laughs> but, uh, that's yeah, awesome I mean, like because as a parent you know and you know as parents that's the kind of thing they wish they could fit on a business card yeah because you know, that's what that's what they, they boast to, to all their other friends this is what my kid does you yeah know? absolutely but, um, well it's, it's taken me 88 episodes to get that right so <laughs> <laughs> there you go yeah and it, it, it's uh it's also hilarious to hear you say i just gotta tell you real quick you know this i love this sort of free form with with this session but mm-hmm. yeah three-time canadian national champion so l- let me just tell you just to, to level set right off the bat that was a, that that was an incredible honor but i gotta tell you the reality of it back in the day and i'm dating myself here back in the day three-time canadian national champion truly meant that it was so early in the pioneering days of the sport uh-huh. that bmx bmx freestyle was was relatively new and not that not that many people knew about it like one out of 50 kids knew about it in canada <laughs> it was the early days of the sport so yeah. when the sanctions were being created and, and you know you had sponsorships and then you had that culmination of like a national championship 
it was really me and two other guys across the country. We would, t- we would totally call <laughs> each other and say, oh, man, I-, I got it last year. Do you want it this year? Yeah. Like, it wasn't like <laughs> That's there, awesome. They were, it wasn't like there was 300 of us competing for it. Right. And, you know, so, yeah, I just want to level set. You know, it sounds it sounds cooler than what it is, but at the end of the day, it was it was a really, really you know, really stoking experience to be part of that. And, <laughs> That's awesome. You know, and, and sort of a pioneer in Canada for, for that part of it. But uh, it was a great story that got me into, uh, it was a wonderful experience that got me into, you know, the, the States, the United States, and, and build my friendship, build my camaraderie, build my associations in the active lifestyle world, which is something that I really enjoy doing now as part of, as part of my professional life. Right. Well, speaking of that professional life, uh, I, I do like to give guests uh, just a, a few moments at the beginning of the show to just kind of tell their own story. So I was curious, can you just give us a bit about your background and maybe just a bird's eye view uh, of, of your days in Canada, getting into the creative business and leading up to today? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, you know, for, for most people, as you mentioned, um, I, I have the good fortune, Adam, to meet a, a ton of really, really great creatives around the world at, at multiple levels in the sense of multiple levels, titles, positions in their career, journeys in their career. And, and on that, uh, one of the things I've just, uh, I've gone rogue. I really enjoy this anonymity, what I call being a ninja, which is why there's not a lot of stuff out there on the internet uh, by design, by the way. Um, but part of that was really, uh, was born out of uh, my journey throughout the business. Uh, I, I've had the good fortune. I came up uh, in the business as a, as a formerly trained graphic designer. Uh, you know, I came out of a, a really incredible the globally influential academy in Toronto and uh, did a five-year program there. And that got me um, into their, their specific program, got me into exposure in ad agencies within the third year of the program. That was their curriculum. It really gets you, uh, it, it really immersed and engaged, not just theoretical. You're not, you're not working out of a book. You're, mm-hmm. you're put right in part of an ad agency as a creative and, and you're learning. You know, you're learning with real stuff. It's not theoretical stuff. You're not doing it out of a textbook. So you're working on real campaigns. Mm-hmm. And through that, I had the uh, I had the incredible opportunity to journey through, you know, in, in my humble opinion, some of the biggest agencies in, in the network. And and these were before. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, these were before they were bought out by the big conglomerates like you know the Interpublics, the the Havis of the world. But uh, yeah, I had a, I had wonderful tenures through uh, agencies like Saatchi and Saatchi. Um, McCann Erickson uh, in Canada and Toronto, and then Shia Day in Toronto, and then and through all of those, it was it was you know you can check the boxes. It was cutting my teeth and just being a big sponge and just asking a mess load of questions and learning and learning and learning an insatiable appetite to just learn and and sometimes irritating to other people, but the, you know thankfully those senior to me at that point they they realized that the intent of all of the questions although bothersome at times was just truly somebody who just loved being in what and what they were doing and uh, you know went through and started off and designer you know even before the mac came about um designer paced up the whole kind of deal and then got into it and cut my teeth as an art director started to become a director cut some spots directed some spots and then, you know, through a lot of tenacity, a lot of hard work, a lot of passion, very kindly earned the right to to hold roles as, you know, senior creative director, executive creative director, and then move, move through the ranks. And then eventually uh, found my way through my friends and associations in Los Angeles because of my sports uh, career mm-hmm. as an amateur athlete, ended up... Uh, had the good fortune to meet folks at Mattel um, through a connection with a friend of mine, 
and through Mattel, had a great opportunity there, spent 10 years as their chief creative and been able to influence all, across all their brands, which was great. I, I have to say, I do want to, I want to interrupt, I want to interrupt you right there because uh, my son, my youngest son is absolutely in love with toy cars. And, and I actually brought you up to him once. I was like, you know that when you become an adult, you can actually make these. You can do this for a job. And it's like, it blew his mind, you know, like you can work on toy cars <laughs> or, or like, or this, even the creative for toy cars. And I know that you guys worked on a, a rebrand with the identity, Hot Wheels identity as well. Yeah. Yeah. That was fun. I mean, th- those were the, those are really, you know, it's a great point, Adam, is th- those were, those are really influential and great opportunities for me where, you know, you, you, you kind of can't screw up working on truly an American brand. Like I, I couldn't find an American or anybody from the globe who hasn't heard of Hot Wheels. So to be, to have the privilege and honor to, to be an influence in shaping and forming and sustaining all of the above to do that with such an iconic brand, really, really humbling, but it was a good kind of pressure and, uh, and affecting that everything uh, from how it's packaged, how it's developed, how the product is designed, the, the full gamut to how it was marketed, really, really humbling and, and learning, great learning experience. Uh, and that, that led to the bigger portfolios of Mattel and, you know, at the right time, just serendipity, you know, one thing led to another, just like it happens to everybody else. Uh, met a wonderful man by the name of Jim Cameron, who was coming out with this film called Avatar and through uh, through him, I uh, got invited to work on a project, and then little did I know that it would lead to uh, indirectly an invitation from 20th Century Fox to join their squad, and held a chief creative role with them for uh, you know a four-year tent stint, which was amazing. And then in that time, just uh, you know, you 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 sort of build what I call a reputation equity in the business, and and one thing or another, or a recruiters calling you, or this person's calling you, and uh, the most uh, the most consistent calls that were coming through from, from the swoosh. And at that time it was great, but I was kind of burnt out traveling and, you know, in the movie business never stopped. And I didn't want to get up and move to, to, to Portland or Beaverton. And so we just had this relationship and then, uh, one thing led to another. And then we started this model where I was kind of like this, what I call a creative ninja, where I was invited to special ops, special projects without actually being on campus unless I, I really had to. And then, that relationship led to what I call that reputation equity. They would call, you know, an executive here would call another executive, another company. And because of that direct endorsement, there was a sense of trust between those two executives. My name was passed on. And, and then I realized, man, this is how I want to be able to do the rest of my career is to be able to, you know, work off of somebody's uh, recommendation, you know, and I didn't want to let down their, you know, the decision of their better judgment of recommending me. And before I knew it, this model of what I call being a creative ninja flourished, and and here we are today. And you know, we got a chance to meet at one of those conferences, and I told my story a little bit more. And yeah, I love it. I, I couldn't, I wouldn't change a thing, Adam. Well, I, I have to say, I'm I'm so I'm absolutely blown away. I mean, if if uh, if you look at the the world today, it's so self-promotional, right? Like get your Twitter's Twitter stuff out there, get your Instagram images out there, especially in this sort of world that I live in in, in the sports sector and and the fact that you sort of live you know fly under the radar purposefully i mean it just goes to show how much weight is actually put on relationships more so than say just your portfolio yeah 
Well, I mean, listen, both coexist. So I don't want to discredit the nature of the way the system works. And the reason I say that, Adam, is the way you described about this idea of a personal brand, who I am and how do people know about me? How do people find them out? That's the world. That's exactly how we live. And that's how we communicate until we meet in real time. With the, old, with the old analog handshake and face meeting, you know, but so that's very viable and it's very real, especially with the next generation of creatives coming into the business. When I say I did it purposely, I realized that, you know, flying under the radar was a direct reflection of trust, you know, and then when that trust was extended on your behalf versus you as a person saying, hey, believe me, I'm good at what I do. It's one thing for me to tell you until I'm blue in the face, Adam, I'm good at what I do. You should, you should bring me onto your project. It's another different thing when you nurture a trusting relationship where you have great experiences, you deliver above and beyond those expectations where somebody on the other end, I don't call them clients, but I call them partners. When that partner trusts you to do that, then that innate trust becomes something that is so valuable. And what I'm doing is I am nurturing that trust and delivering on it every single time and then upping it every single time because there's nothing better than, you know, your book, your portfolio, your work, your physical work, uh, being able to manifest the results of why people are endorsing your thinking, you know? And, And what's great about that, just to get super deep for a second, is The moment I decided in my career not to lead with my book or my work, per se, I realized it was a lot more effective because it was true to who I was as a person when I met somebody for the first time because they could sense my energy, they could sense my passion, they could see it in real time. But if I led with my book, whether I liked it or not, there was a high probability because this person didn't know me, they're evaluating me or they're making a perception of me based on my book. And without me being able to say how that work got to be that was, the thinking behind the actual execution that they're bringing in the book, mm-hmm. then it's more than likely being perceived subjectively. Oh, yeah. And then subject, yeah, subjectively is, it, it can be very dangerous because especially now, and here's the reality, brother, there are so many good pieces of work in books and portfolios that are coming out of like high schoolers before they even go to college. <laughs> yeah, totally, so, man. <laughs> and, and really, honestly, and, and the thing that I would, that I caution when, when, when I have the good fortune to, to mentor some of these, you know, our next up and coming people, by the way, you and Adam, you and I are going to work for, right? Yeah, totally. I, I saw, a t- I saw a tweet one day and it was, uh, yeah. it was basically like, if, uh, if a style is popular on, say, Dribble, you know the website Dribble, yeah, uh, then yeah. you can you can bet that there's there's some fifteen year old Russian who's doing that same thing for like five dollars or whatever. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. these kids are just mimicking stuff and getting so good at it everywhere. And, and listen, Matt, Matt, props to them for mimicking it, right? Because technology and 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 the accessibility because of that technology allows them to be prolific and flourish with that. And actually, I'm a big proponent. I don't fault that. What I fault is the people who complain about it and they don't make a, a they don't make an active, they don't apply on their decision to go, I gotta fix this. I gotta make this so that I'm a viable, you know, creative a designer to do this. And and what I was, where I was going with before was that there's so much talent out there. And it really is unfortunately 50-50. That talent is technology talent. 
They know they, they can open up cloud and and run Photoshop and Illustrator and, and After Effects like they're like there's no tomorrow. They do it like the back of their hand, but it becomes more executional and sort of templated, mm-hmm. which is why I'm saying that the work looks slick. There's no denying the work looks great. You can take you can cut and paste a high schooler's work, a, you know, a sophomore college person's work, and and put and put it in a in, in a in a creative or advertising annual, and it looks great. Here's the challenge. When you meet that person before you even see that work and you you ask them to articulate, how did you get to that execution? What was the thinking behind it? How did you develop your creative? So most of the time I've experienced that, you know, they don't know what they don't know, but inadvertently they're at a loss because what they're doing is they're explaining themselves technically, but they're not explaining themselves and projecting their ability to think like a designer. Right. right? And, and like I always say, Design thinking starts with your head. It doesn't start with you on your stylus or your mouse or, or opening up a save as template that you've got in your library of stuff or, or going to your favorite typeface. And, you know, it starts with I take part in this. It starts with a napkin and a pen and the ability to understand how to tell a story through design. And then the execution of that story is the actual design. Right. Right. But when you put that in your book. And you don't, you're not able to articulate it, and then your book precedes you. What happens is you've kind of conceded half of your ability to project in your unique point of differences. People are going to look at your book and they're going to love it, hate it, and they're going to go, "It looks like everyone else." But why are you different? And as a ninja, what I find that I had the good advantage and I nurture every day is I I I deliver and I build on that trust every single time, and then the work, the thinking is an actualization of that promise. And it, it, it seems to have worked for me and, I, and I, it humbles me every day to keep doing that. Well, I definitely love that. And I, I know that you mentioned some of that in your your presentation in, at MLC and people were mind blown. Like, wait, what? You're, you're, you're not putting weight on the portfolio, but uh, you know, you talk about it being a promise. And, and I have to say, even nowadays, uh, I absolutely love reading articles on like say Medium from creatives that are working in-house at like these big companies like Facebook and Google and all these places where they actually are contractually not even allowed to show their work, but they talk about the thinking behind it. And it's, it's, it's been so awesome to read that, to see like, hey, it's not just this surface level thing where you just crank something out because you're good at a particular software. There's actually some strategic thinking involved. Right. But, but Venom, I got to tell you, you brought up something really great because I recently spent some time with some, uh, some design students from Clemson, which is, an, is a great program. And I got the real sense with their eagerness to come into our craft, our business, our industry. They were very, very technically sound in execution. Right. Mm-hmm. And what I was saying to them was, you know, hone your ability, be aware about understanding this concept and this principle of design thinking, not not as a sexy phrase or a cliche phrase, but the actual application of what it means to apply this principle of thinking like a designer and, and, and thinking of what the design does, its purpose, and that informs your execution. And, they, you know, you can look on their face when I'm saying this and, and they looked at me and rightly so they're like, yeah, but, you know, Rick, you've been in the business a while. You know that. And I go, exactly. But what I'm saying to you is don't get down on it. Don't stress on it. And for any of those people out there who might be listening who are feeling like, yeah, man, but I haven't I haven't done the tours that you've done, Ricardo. I haven't been at these big agencies. My point is it's a rite of passage to, to know that you're good at design, you're executing, but also challenge yourself to understand that at the very root of what we do as designers, whether our medium is physical, 
digital, whether we're designing websites or billboards or t-shirts, at the end of the day, design is a method of communication, Uh right? And the design is the manifestation of that communication. Whether it manifests itself as a video, a web banner, a t-shirt, what have you, whatever the execution is. But because the lowest common denominator is communication, you have to be able to master and continually hone it. I, I haven't stopped to this day. I'm learning from people that I meet every day is that as you get better, as you get older, as you get more tenured in the business, you have to do what I call thinking big and talking small, which is really, really great, creative, big ideas, but being able to communicate it and articulate it in such a small, succinct way. Brevity is an art form, man. You got to be able to say in five words what somebody gets wowed about when they see it in pictures or or, or digital or the medium. Because mm-hmm. communication at the end of the day is what we do. We communicate through our creative versus we're, we're designers, yes, we're designers as far as the tactical execution of our profession, but before we tactically execute, we're communicators because we need to communicate the purpose of that design. And that's something that I, I felt compelled to share, you know, as, as you brought it up, is that for the people, the juniors coming into the business, you, you, you don't have the experience yet to know what design thinking is. But what I'm challenging you guys who's listening to this is understand what it means, dig into it, and find your own way of how you can apply how design thinking as a principle gets to express your unique voice. Because that's how you're going to need to have your book be the, the secondary part of introducing you versus your book leading your introduction. Well, I, I love where we're at with this because I'd like to sort of expand a little bit and talk about branding uh, and, and just brand thinking as well because uh, obviously sort of living in the sports business where I reside, you, you hear a lot of marketing people and social media people using the word brand. But I, I think in, in, in some cases, even designers, they're like, we're, we're doing this uh, you know, branding or whatever. But in some cases, I don't think that they truly understand what it is. So could you sort of give your definition of branding and then also where it sort of falls in line with marketing and advertising and design and how those things all work together to complement each other? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so Every, everybody understands this concept of brand. Everybody has many definitions of it in the sense that everyone is trying to own their own definition of it to, to create their point of difference, whether you're an agency, a freelancer. Uh, to me, I, I'm not as smart as all these people. I, I just use what I've realized and, and, and done in my, in my personal career and what's happened to me in real time versus I read it in a book. Like this is, I can't get any more real than this shit, which is brand to me at the end of the day is way more than a logo, an identity, a program, a color palette. At the end of the day, a brand to me reflects a promise, right? What is the promise of X brand when it relates to what people's expectations of it are? So when somebody says to me they're working on a branding program, they may be talking about the tactical execution of that branding, which is we're redesigning the identity. We're, 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 we're augmenting the colors. We're expanding the brand through licensing. My challenge to them is, do you really first understand what that brand's unique point of difference is? What's its promise? Whether it's a service brand, an intellectual property, there's something unique about that brand. And at the end of the day, that's a promise. And to me, how that fits in, in my methodology, my approach, when, when, when I'm invited to, to work on and advise on brands with some of our partners is that there's, 
there's sort of these three these three verticals, Adam, and they all merge together, that classic Venn diagram. But there, to me, there's a very definitive order in what happens, which is what I call branding, marketing, and then advertising, right? And whether you put that top to bottom, bottom to top, left to right, the very first thing, the root of everything is branding. What's the promise, right? Understanding what your promise is then informs how you market it, which is the strategy of that promise, The third part of that paradigm in that continuum is what I call quote-unquote advertising. And advertising I'm using as sort of a generic phrase just to encompass everything that that it means to create the the physical manifestation of that message, of the marketing message, which is an ad, a banner, a t-shirt, right? So if you look at it from left to right, once you know the promise, which is understanding and applied discipline of what brand is, you then take that promise and you write a strategy of how, how am I going to tell people about this? And that's the strategy of marketing. That's what mark, great marketing does. It effectively tells what that promise is. And then the third aspect of that is you then need to execute against that strategy so that you're writing, creating, executing the right me- messages in the right mediums to get that strategy out to the right people. It sounds so esoteric, brother, but I got to tell you, put yourself in this position, Adam. If you were a personal brand, Adam Martin, what's your promise? Who needs to know about it and how are they going to know about it? You've just gone through the three paradigms of branding, marketing, and advertising. Mm-hmm. But here's the challenge of why I want to bring this up, and I appreciate you, you, you asking, is a lot of the times, although well-intended, I have found that people with their well intent, and even though they have amazing capabilities, they don't necessarily approach projects or opportunities in that order of the continuum. They start with the execution first, and then they go, okay, this, is, this looks really freaking cool. Now, how, how, where are we going to put this on, on? Are we going to do this as a video? Are we going to do this? You know, what you got to understand is what makes us different from the other brand in our space? What makes me different from that person? Then what's the strategy of how I can capitalize and exploit what that point of difference is? And now how do I execute against that strategy? Right. So it, to me, branding is a promise, but the application of the way that our firm does this, our approach is that we have a very, very disciplined, unwavering approach to, to going through these three cycles. And we first start with brand. And, at, you know, when I was younger in my career, I was. I thought I was drinking my own Kool Aid. I thought I was the. I was the hottest designer in the world, and I was naive. You know, I was drinking my own Kool Aid. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I got into a really great experience where a client at that time, at, when I was working at a big ad agency, just called me on my bullshit, right? And it was humbling because I was so mad. I was like, "What does the client know? They're the client. I'm the creative. What do they know?" But deep down, when I was by myself later on that night, it was like, "Damn, they hit a hot button. They're they're right." But I, I was so afraid to admit that out loud. Yeah. And then it was that very evening that I realized, you know what? I presented design. I didn't present design thinking. Hmm. Because when I presented design only, Adam, what happened? That person across the table either liked or didn't like the design because it was subjective. Right. But wouldn't it have been better if that person across the table said, I understand why you got to this design. I love the thinking. I understand why you've approached it this way versus I don't like red today. So I don't like the design. Right. And that's when I realized that I had to apply this whole idea of branding and then marketing and then quote unquote advertising. And what are the specific development phases across that continuum?
That's awesome, man. That's great. Great stuff for for these listeners as well, the ones that are sort of grinding it out in-house. I do want to uh, talk a little bit about courage because I, I think one thing that I, I admire and respect about you, not only did you sort of acknowledge the fact that at one point, you know, you let your ego sort of get the best of you, but then you sort of made a path and uh, you switched that up. But also, even in some of your presentations, you've mentioned how um, you, you have the courage to speak up and really push for ideas and processes you believe in. I don't know if that was a turning point for you then uh, that you just mentioned or not, but you know, one of those instances includes moving your creative studio at Mattel. Uh, you mentioned this from a presentation a couple years ago without asking executives permission to sort of build and facilitate a more creative environment or even running ads uh, I remember the an ad that you mentioned with the two high heels yeah. and, a, and a car jumping. Um, and and I'll, I'll see if I can snag a picture and put that in the show notes for people listening. But, uh, you know, you're pushing the envelope with, ex- with executives, uh, but you, you had already ran this ad <laughs> before even talking to them. Uh, so I'm curious, where does this curse come from? I mean, because we have a lot of people that are sort of living in this in-house, downtrodden, sports creative culture that listen to this show. And, and they really... Are, are craving pushing their ideas in these environments, but they just haven't had the courage to really step out. And then can you elaborate on those stories a little bit that I mentioned too, just so they, they don't have just the surface level like I'm, I, I talked about? Sure, sure. I'll, I'll give you the context of that. But um, I, thanks for that question. I mean, you know, let, let me articulate. Let me, let me first clarify that, you know, courage in the sense of, hey, you did it differently. You started to do it differently. I need to be absolutely above board, level set everyone with the content, the pre-context that, when I decided to do that, there was a reason to do it. And that reason wasn't to be different for the sake of being different. The reason wasn't so that I could piss people off. Provocation or having the courage to do it differently was a direct result of me when I was in-house realizing that whether I liked it or not, I was under this in, this, in, in different scenarios I was in. In one particular case, I was regretfully under this banner of marketing right? As most in-house companies are. The creative group is under the umbrella of the marketing organization. They're under that vertical, uh, you know, in the organizational chart. And well, what happened was the highest person in, in, in the food chain of that marketing uh, group was really versed in marketing, but they weren't necessarily versed in creative and design. And so they were making decisions on design and creative that was frustrating me, but I was blaming them, and that was the challenge. I shouldn't have been blaming them. What I needed to do was look in the mirror and realize it's not their fault. They're evaluating creative based on what I'm presenting, and it's subjective evaluation. And what I realized was I wasn't provoking. I wasn't I didn't have the courage to say, well, this again, design thinking, this is how I got to this design. So in some situations, I moved my team out of that, that situation so that I wasn't sort of the in-house kinkos anymore. I wanted to earn our credibility by being better presenters. And a a really great, compelling presenter to me meant that before I showed any piece of creative, I had a really solid five to seven minute up front before even showing any creative. I sort of had it behind my back. And for five or seven minutes, I was talking very, very strategically in a marketer's tone, in a marketer's language in a branding person's language right in an executive's language to then put them in the same space where they are going they're going to understand how to evaluate what i'm about to show them right but as a junior what i found was without that courage i felt like well this is how it works i'm supposed to show the work cover my eyes and hope for the best right 
And when, when you're conditioned to that scenario, you, you're caught in this infinite loop where you're going, yeah, but that's the way it is. And I'm, and I would say to that person who I was that person, I was saying, well, you got to make a decision, man. You either live in that system because you need your paycheck or you're going to really, really understand your voice and find a diplomatic, respectful, professional way to know how to present your thinking so that your credibility is earned each and every time you present creative. And, and what worked for me was understanding from that person's point of view, hey, you're a marketing person who, who, who's familiar with design, but I really want you to understand how strategically you think is how strategically I develop my creative. So having the courage to present that way was a very conscious decision for me to, to get out of my comfort zone, you know, to literally, you know, use my own words like put up or shut up. And it was very easy for me as a design leader to tell my team this, but I realized I wasn't doing it myself. Right. And so I had to, you know, I have to call bullshit on myself. Like, I, you know, you can't lie to the person in the mirror, Adam. So <laughs> right. I looked at there and I said, you got, you got to do this. And, and to your point, like in some of those environments, you know, you know, making making the provocative decision to just move my group out of a physical area that was attached to the marketing people by having our own creative board, having our own creative area. What happened was just the, the psychology and the physicality of it was the marketing people were just psychologically now coming into our area versus we were we were going into the marketing boardroom because they're they're our group. Right. Right. So just right there, the psychology of, of, of putting them in a different environment would, would set the stage for us to say, this is our space. This is how we work. We don't work independently of you. We work with you, but we have a very specific discipline of we're the experts and you're the experts in marketing. So come on over. Let us present to you the thinking of how we as collaborative teams are achieving the same goal. So to me, courage is about first understanding truly your situation. And if it's something you truly, truly can't fix or willing to fix, don't bitch about it and do something about it. Or if you're not going to do anything about it, don't bitch about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. Don't come I'll, to, I'll, I'll I'm, love I'm that. not coming. To your, I'm not going to come to your pity party because you have a choice to do that. And and I'm not trying to get inspirational on anyone. What I'm saying is I made what was a scary decision. I will acknowledge that it was a scary decision to get out of my comfort zone and say, I need to do something about this. I really need to earn over time the credibility to be a really great designer, but not look to somebody who just turns on design and, and hits enter on a, on a keyboard and then fits out another design that's due at four o'clock. Mm-hmm. Right? right. I earned the respect of why. Right. The deadline exists, but we're not ready to deliver that yet because I'm not fully understanding how I can lead my team to deliver against that because we don't understand the strategy of how you're getting there. Right. And then if, if your boss or that person is saying, just go do it, that's the, the real world example I'm saying to, to you and, and to all my friends in the business here who are listening. You have to make a decision. Are you willing to follow the system because, look, you need to and it's, it may be you need to pay the bills, you need to pay the mortgage on your house, then rightly so, right? Then maybe that's not the environment for you and you have to do something about it. Or this isn't the place where you're going to thrive and you have to explore other scenarios or other environments where you're going to thrive. In my particular case, Adam, I just realized for me to thrive in the most prolific, happy, expressive fully creative way that I can't I can't wait to, to get up in the morning I had to be in an environment that I created myself which is this creative ninja where I, I get invited to these companies and they trust that I'm going to come in there with my experience and do it 
but I don't walk around like I'm some big shot with some fancy title. Right. I let the thinking, I let the work do, you know, do my talking, if you will. So that to me, that that's how I would approach courage, which is, is the applied ability to do something. You know, it, it's, it's very easy. I find too, when I was coming up in the business, Adam, that I was confusing and I just tweeted this the other, you know, a couple of weeks back, I was really, really confusing being liked in the organization and thinking that I was good in the organization. Mm-hmm. So I would have lunch with the right people. I would, I would butter up. I would make friends with this guy or that woman. And I, and I, and it was like, everyone would say, yeah, Rick, he's a cool guy. He's a cool guy. To me, it was a false sense of job security because I, I, I mistook being liked for being good. Mm-hmm. And, and the true testament of that is you can't take being liked and transfer that equity to another company. But oh, if you're yeah, that's good, a good point. You, yeah, if, you do, if you're good at what you do and you have a real point of difference, right, and you bring that into a new company where you haven't yet had that relationship where you're being liked, then your work will speak for you. Right. And that, that is what I mean about I can't make this shit up. It's it's real for me. You know, mm-hmm. I was that guy who, who was who was so high on his ability to design, but I wasn't good at presenting the thinking of my design. And then I further got confused with, well, shit, they like me here, so I'm going to have right. a job forever. But as soon as I as soon as I went to a conference and I met somebody else who I didn't know and I started to to think, holy shit. They, they're fucking smoking me right now because they're 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 really good at design because I understand why they're designing. It really level set me, mm-hmm. right? And then I realized oh, I got to get in that game over there, and then that meant hard decisions to get out of my comfort zone, right? And keep going. Or if I was going to stay where I was, then you know I don't want to bitch about it. And mm-hmm. if you do, all the power to you. And if if it's not a snare, you you can leave right away. Then at least acknowledge that and make plans to, to transition to an environment where it's, where it's going to be the most prolific for you. Mm-hmm. Now, now speaking of being liked, uh, it's, it's a really interesting time for design, especially for brands that are sort of creating, maybe they do a rebrand or especially in the sports industry. I mean, the work goes out there, it's put on a pedestal and it's judged by the masses. A, a recent example, uh, Juventus FC, which is a, a football club in Spain, they just updated their visual identity and brand strategy. It looks great, in my opinion. It was publicly scrutinized around the globe on Twitter, all over the place, because they were changing their sort of traditional football crest, um, which is this, the, the common look amongst European soccer clubs. Uh, and that being the case, I think that it sort of causes people to just be safe, you know, like do the safe thing, maybe make minimal changes. And, and I'm curious, you actually mentioned. Uh, you, you bring up mistakes in a Fast Company article that I read, uh, read uh, yeah. you quoted in. And, and you mentioned, direct quote is, uh, a mistake isn't a failure, rather it's a massed innovation waiting to be revealed. So can you elaborate on that and then maybe how that sort of plays into almost how the, the, the world of design is a democracy now almost, where people just, everybody has a say publicly, you know, on Twitter. Yeah, let, let, me, let me address those three salient points that you just brought up, Adam, which is the Juventus case study, you know, the whole idea of design being a democracy, um, you know, by, by, you know, designed by committee, if you will, and the whole idea of uh, mass innovation, you know, failure is a mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, let me start first by, you know, I love how you brought up the, uh, the Juventus uh, identity. That resonates with me deeply because when I was with Mattel, I had an opportunity. I took charge and I was I was proactive in being able to update 
the Hot Wheels Flame logo, which has been around for 50 some odd years. Right. And what I didn't do was redesign the logo or the mark, that flame mark. What I realized was the mark was one omnidirectional. It only faced one way. And it drove me crazy that when I saw it on the side of a NASCAR, but it was going backwards on the track, it drove mm. me crazy. Right. Right. And so we created a system. It was featured in this really wonderful book by Lena Wheeler, Designing Brand Identity. But the case study was featured there where we modernized the brand. We didn't change it. We evolved the brand by, by keeping its DNA, its look, its, its attributes, its sugar. So it was still very recognizable as the icon, as the, as the brand signature for Hot Wheels. But we just made it so that it, it could orient both ways. And the little subliminal things about um, compressing it and extending it just evoked speed, right, and movement. But, man, we got a backlash from the community, from the world, saying, you can't screw with the logo. Right. And that's going to happen. Here's the reality. That's going to happen, and I respect why it's happening because you are, you are, you are given license, you are given the autonomy and authority to play with a legacy mark, and that legacy means something to a culture of followers. Right. So what I did there with my team was we introduced it, but we explained the rationale behind it. And what we did by strategically doing that is we knew that there was always going to be one hater. But what we got was we prepped the other eight haters out of 10 by first introducing the story before revealing the mark. So that by the time they saw the evolved mark, they understood why we did it. And what we did was we basically diffused their ability to criticize it. Because if I had done that, they would just be criticizing again based on subjectivity. They didn't know the rationale behind why we did it. Right. right. So that's where I would I, I would relate it back to the Juventus, which is just it's a culture, it's a legacy mark, and it takes people a while to move to legacy, you know, away from legacy and adopt it and and, and embrace it as the next generation of the legacy, mm-hmm. which incidentally is called progress, because without progress we remain stagnant, and you it's that cliche you can't expect great new results using the same methodology, right? And sometimes you need to evolve to define new. The, to define better, to define to define invigoration or replenishment of something, right? Your other point about, you know, I love it when I was I was humbled by being interviewed by by Fast Company for this. You know, I, as creatives, I like and, and part of my my influence in the product design world is you know um, you need to fail fast and you need to fail often, which means rapid prototyping. You need to just get ideas out there. Don't overthink them. And what happens is if you, if you look at failures like, oh, I'm not going to do that again, what I like to do is I look at it and I go, well, why didn't that work? Too bad it didn't work, but there's a story, there's a silver lining and everything else. And then in realizing that failing isn't actually failing, failing is revealing things that I could have refined. And my, my learning was I need to refine against that missed opportunity. That's why I say, you know, failure is a mass innovation waiting to be revealed. Versus people accepting failures, and that's it, and I'm not going to go visit that idea again, right? So I apply that same principle here every day, you know, with, with the whole, with, you know, the whole, just keep, keep, keep working on the layout, keep doing new ideas. There's, there's not, there's not, you know, there's no bad ideas, just ideas that you haven't, you haven't thought out and put on paper. Yeah. So, so what are your thoughts? Like, uh, there was a, you know, out in your, your neck of the woods, so to speak, at University of California, I think a couple years ago, 
had a redesign of their logo, got a lot of backlash, and then they completely reverted after the public outcry, which was probably a vocal minority. I mean, is that is that a failure, or should they have pushed through? Uh, you know, Michael Beirut has a great quote where he mentioned logos are a, are a marathon and not a sprint, so you can't really judge them based on what you initially see. What are your right. thoughts on that? Well, again, let me let me just qualify it. Thank you for bringing that up. My thoughts are an opinion, just to pre-qualify. My opinion is exactly that. It's not factual. It's just my perception. So mm-hmm. with, with the case of something like UCLA or something similar with it, at the end of the day, I first level set by acknowledging that University of California is, is an institution, and that institution is influenced and ultimately run by its members. Those members are the students, the faculty, the community, the culture, mm-hmm. right? And the culture looks at a mark as a connected piece of how they assemble together as a culture. It's their fam- it's their family crest. Mm-hmm. It's no different than in our business in the makers of sport world. You know, when, when people are designing identities for MLB, the NBA, you know, uh, the NFL, those are marks that people, you know, as our friend Todd Radom says, those are those are marks that people decide to tattoo because they're a badge of courage or a reflection on that. Mm-hmm. So when somebody like UCLA puts out an identity and then they and they, they rescind it, much like JC Penny did this and you know some other big brands right. that we know about did Gap. this. And, and, yeah, I think Gap did it. Yeah, and the and and, and the community and the Rams, Gap. the LA Rams recently yeah. had a had a thing with it. I, I'm not faulting them. What I'm saying to them, in my humble opinion, is what they've done is they've tried to push the envelope. They've well intended to push the envelope, but they've also very respectfully listened to their culture, their community. And they've let the culture and community tell them. I still believe in your brand. You don't need to. You don't need to update the mark, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times, I've met people in the business where they feel like, "Oh, I'm the new CMO, so under my watch, I feel like I got to do some major, major shit here." So what I'm going to do? I'm going to design a new logo, right? They're well intended, but what 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 makes them credible is that they're humble enough to go. I was well intended in progressing the mark, the identity of this brand, but the culture, of the community is telling me we don't need to adjust it. I still love your brand. Work on the reason. Work on the promise of your brand versus work on the look of your brand. Right. right? But it's those people who push that agenda and change for change's sake. That's when today's age, you're going to lose an affinity towards a brand. You know, right. We're in a day and age where people will dismiss your brand in three seconds or less. And, and that could be something as simple as, all right, you're going to change your logo. You're going to change your identity. All right. I've been a loyal fan, but if you're really going to push that envelope – you know, by changing that identity, it's also indicative to me that you're probably going to change the MO of your brand as you move forward, mm-hmm. right? And as I mentioned, that's not what we did with Hot Wheels. We kept the integrity. We didn't change the positioning, the DNA, the promise of Hot Wheels. We did it for a very specific mechanical reason, which was I wanted that mark to be able to face both ways so that that flame was always going around the track, pointing forwards, right? right? And then when we explained it as that rationale, the community embraced it and, and understood it but we also respected that that one diehard fan who's a collector said don't screw with my favorite logo right right what? yeah no that's great because i think even in sports a lot of times you'll see where a, a logo was created in the early days of say photoshop or even previous uh, you know prior to photoshop where it was hand-drawn and then now yeah. with the multiple surfaces and mediums that this thing needs to be printed on or or displayed in, you know, sometimes it, 
I can see that now because you, you mentioned change for change's sake. I love that. I actually wrote that down. I'm going to like <laughs> print this out and put it up on uh, on my uh, cork board just because that that's something that I, you know, you almost seem like you run into that so much where people just want to put their stamp on something and change it just for the sake of changing it. But what is the why involved, I guess? Yeah. And so on that note, Adam, let me just, let me just tell you with immense pride that, that I'm saying this to you very factually, very honestly, we take immense pride at 13, where before we take on a project, we grill our prospective partner. We, we actually find a way to say to them, do you really need us? Mm-hmm. Right? And, what, and, and, and the big difference, what I mean by that is, do you really need us means that, why are you changing your mark? Why are you doing this with this initiative? We need to understand it so that we can fully deliver against it. But if we sense that you're doing that for the sake of doing that, and we don't really fully understand it, then we have, as a firm, we have to make a tough decision. Does this represent a billing for us? Because we need to pay the bills of our office, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and the overhead of our staff. Or do we do it because we understand that this is an opportunity to take our expertise, collaborate with a visionary, and then use our collective visionary to push the envelope envelope forward for them, right? right? And what that means from a business methodology is we take immense pride in walking away from projects because of those projects sometimes represent change for change's sake. Mm-hmm. It's the age old, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right. Right. Just because you can, you should because you have a reason for doing it. And that reason is founded on research, on information that says the consumer, the audience is going to welcome this because we have been listening to what they've wanted mm-hmm. versus we're going to change it because we're going to tell the consumer they want this now. Right. That's when it becomes a very dangerous proposition, right? So at 13, we, we, we actually take pride in, in not taking on a lot of projects because it, it, unless we can truly help, then we're not going to engage in that project. And we'll, we'll walk away from a billing because it just doesn't feel like something we can deliver on. And, and that goes back to my, my earlier principle, which is reputation equity. You know, it's so funny. When you walk away from a project, it's almost the reverse psychology. People go, well, what do you mean you don't want to work on this? And it's almost like they want to work with you more. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because you're walking away. <laughs> you're but, but the reason they, Yeah, but the reason they want to work with you more is because you've provoked it. You've had the courage to challenge, not disrespectfully, you've had the courage to challenge why it is that they're doing something. Mm-hmm. Right? And we're not telling more the experts of why you shouldn't do this. What we're doing is we're having a very real conversation and we're giving them a perspective. And then in that perspective, they're realizing that our approach is unique, it's different, it's objective, it's strategic, and it makes sense of how we would approach it given the opportunity. But if someone just wants to push an agenda and they're looking for a service organization to just do it and they're going to write us a check for it, then we take immense pride to say, well, great, I th- good luck with the project and we'll be happy to recommend seven other firms that would, would probably entertain having a meeting with you. We're going to kindly pass on this one. Right. Inevitably, they call us a week later and they said, okay, all right, so what is it going to take? It's not going to take more money. It's just going to take you to really articulate why you're doing what you're doing, right? And it's it's been a great it's it's been a great way, Adam, that I'm coming full circle to say that everything that I'm sharing with you today, these great questions that you're prompting, is a direct reflection of the applied principles of what I have done in my career and I'm now doing in this in this part of my profession is courage to provoke because it's understanding the reason, the creative, and the idea is being done in the first place. Mm-hmm. And then once you understand what the creative is supposed to do, it informs then the best way that that creative needs to manifest itself. 
So let me ask you this. And a lot of our people, I have some great, very talented, very smart people in the makers of sport community, like paid community, private Slack. And we chat all the time about business and strategy and these types of things. And, and some of these people are so good at what they do, but they are just, they're, they're, they feel like their hands are tied. That whole, com, uh, your sort of mentality uh, that you mentioned in the Miami ad school talk, computers execute, people create, you know, and that being a byproduct of electronics. Well, a lot of these people sort of get stuck in this almost McDonald's like situation where, yeah, you can get a cheeseburger real quick and it might fulfill your hunger, but was it good? Like, is it, is it good for your, your, body is it good for you uh is it does it taste good and so they have to sort of crank stuff out because of this whole twitter and instagram you know sports is a 24 7 cycle it's non-stop so how can they sort of combat that mentality a little bit of being you know maybe i sort of just use the term photoshop hands like you you essentially are saying to this other to these clients that hey we're not going to just execute something because you need someone to execute it we're going to execute because there's we got it's got to be the right fit from a strategic perspective and we got to understand your why. So how can they combat that when they're already starting sort of so low down on the totem pole with like athletic directors and marketing executives in house and the fast pace of how it goes? Yeah. Well, I mean, what you just described, Adam, I'm, I'm, I'm again, I'm not as smart as you, but I'm going to, I'm going to try to rephrase it in, in simpler words, which is it is the idea that design has been commoditized and you're treated as the in-house kinkos. Someone is just essentially doing, just go do it. Just go do it here. I'm digging the bell, go do it. And I need it by four o'clock. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter where you are in your career. When you say low on the totem pole, I don't believe in that shit. I believe in the fact that you are now a professional. You're being paid to do what you do. You're not some high school kid who's who's bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. You're you're defined as a professional because you're being compensated to do this. Early on in your career, as you get more experience, I don't want that to be an excuse for anybody to go, I'm so low in the totem pole, I can't challenge the status quo. You're not challenging the status quo for challenging it. You're provoking and learning so that you can understand why an organization does this, mm-hmm. right? And you have to learn where you are in, your, in the business, that in the environment of where you are, when is a design a commodity and it just is what's needed to run the motor, to run the ship? Mm-hmm. And you as a designer have to not overthink it and not try to make it a Clio or a, a, a communication arts one pencil design, right? right? It's not meant to be an award-winning design. But here's the thing that Level said everything. Whether it's a commoditized design just needs to go out because it's going to be a banner on the side behind the backstop or above the dugout, right? Regardless of that, what you have to do is remain consistent as a creative. And what I said is you have to remain consistent in understanding what is the purpose of that design's role in communicating, right? So if if the role of, of that communication is somebody up there saying to you, I really need you to make a really cool banner with the Astros logo and then promote that we have 199 sodas up in the concession stands. Mm-hmm. It is what it is. Don't right. challenge that. All right. Right. right? But you can't, you can't design that thing like you're going to design a, you win a Clio for it. All but right. What you do is understand <laughs> how does the look of this banner relate to the other things that's happening in the identity of, of this organization or of this club, of this franchise. Mm-hmm. It's your job to bring continuity to do that. And that's when I say to you, screw that. I don't ever want to hear say, oh, I'm so new and I'm so low on the totem pole. You haven't yet created that experience. And my challenge to you is willingly create those environments, willingly create those experiences so that you're learning and you're failing fast. But you're not failing to move backwards. You're failing to bring awareness to what you need to do again and not, you know, versus I'm not going to do that again because that didn't work. 
Right. That if you're ever sitting, if you're sitting back on your chair and just going, you know, they're going to change it anyway. Then you know what? There, there's a good number of people like that, and in a way, I'm glad they exist because it makes my job easier. There's less competition for me, right? <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> understand when understand when design and creative is commoditized, and there's a reason for its commoditization. But also understand when design serves a unique purpose, a specific purpose, and understand when that purpose is being communicated to you with the right brief, with the right assignment descriptions. It's your job to level set and make sure that when that execution gets done, it serves a purpose. Mm-hmm. That's your job because you're the communicator. Right, right. right. Well, listen, uh, changing past just a little bit. Uh, I'm an avid reader. I always encourage my listeners to read as much as possible. But I'll admit, sometimes, you know, we it's a it's a we live in a consumption world where you just consume, consume, consume. And sometimes my own thirst for knowledge keeps me from sitting down and actually creating because it's like I want to consume it all instead of create. And I know that you actually mentioned that. You compress, you know, you can compress so many books into one, and it's sort of a false set of yeah. knowledge. Uh, can you elaborate on that for for my listeners, and maybe s- even give me personally some tips on how I can compress this knowledge to leave more time to execute than just reading about it? Yeah, yeah, of course. And, and, and again, Adam, thank you for that. I, I think you mentioned earlier, and, and for anybody who wants to go a little bit further on this, it was sort of a soundbite I left uh, with with my friends at Miami Ad School. Uh, I'm a guest professor with their program, and that's something that's very important to me. And the real world story there was coming up in the business, you know, cutting my teeth. I was, I, you know, I was, I didn't know it at the time, hindsight is twenty twenty. but I really was under this disguise of going, shit, the more books I read, the smarter I'm going to be. Mm-hmm. And I, it was this false sense of accomplishment where I read this book one week and I'm going to buy the next one, I'm going to read this book. And then false sense of accomplishment looking over at my studio and looking at this one wall and being 70 or 80 books, right? Right. But to your point, what I found that I didn't realize until later was I had read a shit ton of these books and I felt smarter, but I wasn't applying what I had read. Mm-hmm. And, and that whole notion of power is nothing without control. Well, knowledge is nothing without application. And then what I realized was, you know what, man, which of these books really stood out for me? And then believe it or not, Adam, I reread my entire library. And at that time, uh, I remember, I think I had 58 books mm-hmm. right, across design, branding, marketing, which were recommended to me as sort of the most influential titles of of that time of that period and i reread them and then when i reread them under a different lens adam i realized that everyone was really saying the same thing but different words and it was my discipline to be able to read read between the lines and saying this is really what they said right right and then what i found was i was able to condense those 57 books to like six or seven Mm-hmm. And those six or seven are the core of my library. And I and I take immense pride to tell you, if anyone ever wants to stop me and quote me on this, I can tell you every word of every page of every book of those of those eight books. Mm-hmm. Right. And the analogy being I'm such a big, you know, like every other kid, I'm a Bruce Lee fan that I can I can say the next line in the movie because I've watched it so many times. Right. Because I know that I know the line in the movie. I know the line. I know the words in that book but more importantly i understand the words in that book and what they're communicating and when i was able to take 57 and condense them down to eight it allowed me to apply the principles of what i was learning and then to to your point how do i find time to do it how do i find time to execute it right and what i did was i just decided i can read all i want but if i'm not applying what i'm learning 
then it's just a false sense of intellect. I, I, I'm, I'm telling myself I'm smarter, right? It's, it's okay to read a lot of books, but at some point you got to put, put it into practice. And it, listen, it's, it's, I'm just going to sh- share this with you. It sounds a little esoteric, but the reason that, that is so true with me, you mentioned earlier about, you know, my, my, my passion, my involvement with the martial arts. You know, I, I have the good fortune to be trained, to be certified in seven arts. And, and, and what I found is as I got, as I got more accomplished, as I got more versed in the arts, what I'm realizing is I'm coming back down to the basics. I'm actually not learning more techniques. I'm being aware of more techniques, but I'm dissecting those techniques to realize what works best for me. And then I have a core set of things that I know works well for me. Mm-hmm. So I use that same metaphor with books, that same analogy with, with what the books represent to the martial arts as a metaphor, which is what is it about I read in this book that I need to apply and what I have found coming full circle with the bookends is understanding how you approach design informs why you design, right? And when you can articulate and present your approach to design, that is what gives you your value. That's what makes you different from other creatives, other designers. Mm-hmm. That's great. I, I'm actually at the point where I've read so many books and I and I listen to a lot of them on Audible or, or whatever, and, and I'm, I'm seeing those patterns, that you mentioned where it's like, ah, it's kind of regurgitated the same thing in, in less words. But I did notice that war of art is on, on your, uh, was yeah. in your, in your video. Yeah. I love, I lo- absolutely love that book. And it's an easy read. Yeah. And you, and you know what? Here, here's a gimme that, that, that uh, most people unexpected when they go, Oh yeah, give me, you know, do me a favor. Give me, give me one of the killer books in your system. And I go, I'm not even going to do that. I'm going to do you one better. I'm going to give you my top secret stuff that works for me mm-hmm. is I watch comedians. Stand-up comics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Watch how stand-up comics, especially improv, like whose line is it anyway? Watch and observe how these these masters of what they do, they're taking spontaneous ideas and telling a story around them and how quickly they can pivot. Mm-hmm. And what it represents is how they can take in an improv situation, somebody feeds them a new word, somebody feeds them a new trigger, and they take that and they extend it all the while they're entertaining you. Right? right. The metaphor being you can work with other people, take their input. Don't don't push it away. Don't defend your work. Embrace their work. Embrace your work. And what happens is you're, you're not losing sight of your, your North Star, which is why am I designing this in the first place? But embrace the collaboration that's happening around you. Right. And watching stand up comics is an incredibly twofold thing. It's just entertaining. It, it, it makes me laugh my Right. My guts out, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But but it's it's also a real lesson as a creative to understand how how they can quickly pivot in a situation. How how a heckler will will, will redivert them somewhere, and and as you know, if a comedian can't handle a heckler, they're booed off the stage, and all of a sudden right. that, that comedian's done. Yeah. But, but it's the great comedians who can who can put a heckler in its place by using humor. Mm-hmm. Is no different than you you the psychology of, of saying to somebody above you. Here's why I think we should do this. It's not that I don't believe you. I, I, I understand where you're coming with this, but here, here's let me show you why I'm doing what I'm doing with my creative. Mm-hmm. And and that that is an incredibly powerful thing, in my opinion. It's just fun to watch too. Right. That's that's yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's great, man. That's awesome. Yeah. I do want to end with uh, just two rapid fires, real quick. Um, what brands out there are, in your opinion, are pairing innovation and storytelling and design and all of these aspects of these things that we talked about very well, aside from the usual Apple and Nike? Like, who should be who should we be watching and sort of drawing inspiration from? 
Yeah, you know what? A great question. And I'm going to say this to you uh, very honestly without naming one particular brand, but I'm going to name the type of, of case studies that I think people should look at, mm-hmm. right? Is look at where athletes become brands is a space to watch, mm-hmm. right? And to your point, it's not just the quintessential, look how Apple's going to do this. Look how Uber's going to do this. You know, the hot, to- the hot button right now, the popular answer right now is look what Elon Musk is going to do with Tesla, Look what they're going to do with the Hyperloop. Like those are the brands to watch. Of course, they're the brands to watch. They're going to happen. But to me, the real tactical learnings, the real world things to watch are watch how the prolification of athletes become brands that are marketable. And more specifically, study brands that are athletes as they journey from their college career to professional career. Uh-huh. How are, how, how are their agents representing them? What brands are associated with that athlete so that they go, I want that person wearing my headphone. I want that person wearing my shoes. Study those people and how they project and present and create their personal brand. That to me, Adam, is a very, very wise way to understand branding and wh- what to watch moving forward because it's always dynamic. And what, what, what triggers me about what appeals to me about those, they're not yet proven brands, right? Mm-hmm. But overnight... It takes, you know, it takes a, an NFL combine. It ta- you know, it takes a it takes a rookie being drafted number one, and all of a sudden, within twenty four hours, he becomes a brand. Right. But two days ago, no one heard about him. Right. Mm-hmm. Watch watch how they develop as a brand. That to me is a great way as creatives to, to study versus going, oh, me and me and fifty thousand other designers are watching how Apple's going to push the envelope next. All of right. course you watch them. Right. <laughs> yeah. Of course you watch them, but really, really pay attention to how people are building brands around personal brands and in particular athletes. Mm-hmm. And then right now too, this is not word of a line, you know this. Right now we're we're in the most prolific time where user generated content allows people to develop their own YouTube channels with a million followers. And all of a sudden, big brands are, are putting money into that YouTube personality. Yeah, absolutely. It blows me away. Yeah, they're a brand in themselves of why somebody like Johnson & Johnson wants to give them product to review, right? But what are they doing to market themselves? What are they doing to stand out from the other people? What mm-hmm. are they doing to, to get the million views? Right. Yeah. What's their reputation equity? Absolutely. Right. I mean, there's Sorry, a guy, that, that's uh, a real answer. No, totally. Yeah. I mean, there's. I'm really fascinated with that myself. I mean, I, you know, you see some of these, uh, some of these ladies that are sort of makeup artists. Uh, I, I follow a, a girl on Instagram who does these inc- this incredible makeup where she becomes like this 3D sort of character. And it's it's unbelievable, and you know she's a brand, and this and the people, you know, there's there's brands that are coming at her now, wanting her to sort of endorse her products, or this guy, uh, PewDiePie, who made like seven million dollars last year playing, you know, games on YouTube. It's incredible. Where the world we live in today is incredible in terms of brands and what you can do with it. Right, and so going back to what we said, Adam, mm-hmm. the, the, when I said before, right, what you asked me what a brand is, right? So you just described it. Right? This is this is my way of sh- saying to you that I can't make this shit up. The people that follow that person, Cutie Pie or this woman who who makes 3D art, their brand, their promise, quote unquote, is that every time they publish content, their followers, their viewers are expecting yet another piece of entertaining, informative content, and because they have. They have unwavering integrity, unwavering discipline and commitment to make sure that each new content, each new post was better than the last. They are fulfilling their promise. They are they are prolificating their brand. Mm-hmm. You That's, know what I mean? Yeah. And you know, this actually brings up uh, something that I read by uh, a guy named Kevin Kelly, who is the founder of Wired Magazine. 
Uh, he's always a sort of a tech futurist. And he wrote an article called 1,000 True Fans years ago. And it's essentially this mentality of if you can, if, if you can gain 1,000 true fans and true fans being the people that will buy you know, the print copy and the digital copy you know, of, of whatever you put out there just because they absolutely love what you're doing, you can create an absolutely incredible lifestyle for yourself. Yep. And, and that's, uh, you know, and that's, uh, I think we see some of these little, little niche brands pop up on Instagram, you know, little maker type things, uh, coffee mugs or whatever it might be that, that have like all these followers. It's a, it's definitely an interesting thing. One more rapid fire. Um, and this is probably going to be a tough one because you've, you've dropped so much amazing knowledge. I'm very appreciative of you coming aboard here and doing that. But if you were to package up one thing for this 160 character social media loving generation, what is one key takeaway that, that you just want to leave these listeners with that you have, you know, maybe that you haven't already. Yeah. I mean, it's even less than a hundred, it's even less than 160 is like embrace and learn the discipline of calling your own bullshit, Adam, is what I would say. Yeah, I love that. Right. And, 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 and it's real for me, and it's real for me to suggest it as an endorsement is because when you know who you are, you're the most authentic, mm-hmm. right? And when you're authentic, in my humble opinion, authenticity means you never have to say your story. It doesn't mean you're being disrespectful. It means I'm not sorry that I've provoked this situation because I need to call my own bullshit to go, I'm not happy in my environment. I need to do something about it, right? right? So that's an example of what I mean by embrace it. Get out of your comfort zone. Learn how to call your own bullshit. And and I needed to do that because, Adam, I was that guy. I was that guy that had the fancy title. But when I, when I realized that I would meet people who didn't have fancy titles like me, but they were freaking doing creative circles around me, it scared the crap out of me. And so what I made a decision was to call my own bullshit and not hide behind my title, but actually put up or shut up, which is exactly why I decided to go ninja and disappear off of that and let my reputation equity speak for myself, right? Because I didn't want to tell people I was good. I wanted to demonstrate that I was good over and over and over again. And in doing that, I built the reputation equity. That reputation equity was associated with trust. And I'm very fortunate and I work hard at it. That trust is within this echelons of brands that I just get to pick and choose that I love because they're brands that reflect who I live, how I live and who I am as a person. So call your own bullshit. (laughs) It's easier to say than do, but I got to tell you, man, it's so easy, but so easy to say. And it's so rewarding when you do it. Ricardo, man, thank you so much for taking time to come aboard. I'm humbled and honored that you take time out of your heavy travel schedule and and work and family to speak to myself. Just a little old guy over here in Kentucky with a side project. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not so little. Oh, good, Adam. (laughs) Listen, I'm I'm grateful uh, more more specifically. You know, I I exist because our community allows people like us to flourish and it's uh, it's our responsibility to pay it forward and give back. So, which is why you and I connected at MLC, you know, it's, it's... it's, I love it because uh, for those people who are familiar with MLC or they're not, and you're going to put a link there, um, it's not one of those big how conferences, you know, and, I, and I've spoken at TED, I've spoken at these big conferences, but what I love about MLC, it represents what the camaraderie of us as creatives do, mm-hmm. right, is that there's no titles at the door. It's creatives talking to other creatives and, and, and that, that the ability to pay it forward and give back. This business has been so great to me and I'm so humbled and so respectful for it. It's my job to give back. 
And I'm going to do that every single day. And if, if this podcast with you is a voice for us, for you and I, to, to, to prep our next generation of, 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 of people who are going to probably be working for Adam, then then happy to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can call anytime, brother. I'll, I'll call you from wherever I am in the world. Happy to do it. Well, man, I'm, I'm very grateful. Where can, where can people, if they wanted to support your work online, where's the best place to, to do that? Well, they're not going to find me again, and I take pride <laughs> telling you that because because of my applied practice as a ninja. But I guess the, uh, the 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 best way and the only way that every now and then I, I tweet, and I don't tweet for the sake of tweeting. I, I tweet infrequently because when I do tweet, I feel like I want to I want to drop an applied knowledge bomb for people that mm-hmm. that can really help because it happened to me. And uh, my Twitter handle is underscore Ricardo with a big C in the first name R I big C A R D O. Crespo underscore. So at underscore Ricardo Crespo underscore. And if uh, people want to go on there, there's a, there's a lot of the stuff that, that, that we've talked about today that I've sort of captured in principle and sort of the 140 characters or less, mm-hmm. you know, very, very but cool. as far as, as far as seeing the, as far as seeing the, 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 the fruits of, of, of the labor, the work I, I do, I, you're going to laugh, but I take immense pride in just, Seeing the shoes that people wear, seeing the the clothes that that they're wearing that uh, that I had the good fortune to work on, and the, and I and and I love that. I don't have to tell you I worked on it. I just right. enjoy seeing the smiles on people's faces. That's, you know, that's incredible, man. Thanks yeah. so much. I I appreciate it, and uh, and and uh, hope to talk to you soon. You got it, brother. Take care. Speak All soon, right. Adam. Wow, incredible, incredible knowledge from Ricardo Crespo. My next guest is going to be Alex Centers. Alex is a design director for Powerade, Vitamin Water, and Smart Water at the Coca-Cola Company. He's also a former designer at the New York Knicks, and he freelances occasionally. In addition, he's worked with Michael Rappaport on the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, When the Garden Was Eden, which is about the New York Knicks teams of the 70s. He's been highlighted in numerous blogs, podcasts, or spoken at conferences like AIGA and How. To find out more about this Brooklyn resident, check out his site, thealexcenter.com, or follow him on Twitter at thealexcenter. Huge, huge thanks again to Ricardo Crespo for taking time out of his extremely busy schedule to come aboard the podcast. As mentioned, he is a bit of a creative ninja online. If you do Google him, you can find some of his talks. Uh, but for the most part, as far as directly reaching out, that's probably not going to happen because as he said, he likes to, to keep it low key. But his Twitter, if you did want to follow him where he does tweet sparingly, again, as he mentioned, it is at underscore Ricardo Crespo underscore. If you're interested in hearing more Makers of Sport episodes, then head over to makersofsport.com slash episodes to check out the previous interviews or listen to the original halftime episodes where I discuss things like business, entrepreneurship, and freelance in the sports industry. Halftime episodes since episode 65 have been available to paid community members only. If you want to support the podcast and access that additional content, you can join the community at makersofsport.com slash community, where you will have access to private Q&As with future former and special guests, Google Hangouts, as well as interact, share, and gather feedback, as well as build relationships with like-minded professionals in the live chat. All community content is recorded and available at any time you join, including the private Q&As. One of those Q&As happened to be with uh, my trademark attorney, so some good stuff there. In addition, community members 
get an opportunity to take part in the high school project, which is a pro bono branding project that we are taking part in for underfunded high school athletic programs around the U.S. More on that particular initiative can be found in episode 75, which is called Donating Your Creativity. I'm also working to build out some new initiatives with a written feature called A Timeout With. So that will be posted most likely in the email newsletter or on Medium where I am basically showcasing community members and just hit them up with a few questions. Give them uh, you know, maybe a two-minute timeout or, or timeout of a basketball game, uh, your traditional time period, and let them just uh, tell a little bit about who they are, what they're doing, and showcase some of these people. A ton of things happening in the future for the community, so uh, be on the watch out for that. Also, Snapchat takeovers. Make sure you follow Makers of Sport on Snapchat. Uh, That's another community thing. Community members are able to take that over as a benefit. So far, we've had Megan Majera of the Indianapolis Colts, Ashley Strauss of the Tennessee Titans, John Willie of the Miami Dolphins, Alina Rogers of University of Utah Basketball, and Matt Lang of the University of Alabama who actually just moved to the University of Texas to be their creative director. So congratulations, Matt, on that. Those are a great look into the day-to-day of working creatives in sports. So be sure to add Makers of Sport on Snapchat to see more stories from creatives in sport. I did recently design a t-shirt called Sports Designers United. It's actually a shirt celebrating the typeface United by House Industries, which is we all know as a commonly used typeface, oversaturated in the sports industry. So it's a bit of an inside joke. We all love it. We all use it. It's almost the Helvetica, in a sense, of the sports design industry. Anyhow, uh, you can go to cottonbureau.com and buy that shirt. There will just be, when when this episode goes up, there will just be 10 days left to order. So the shirt reached the minimum. It is going to get printed, but there is no maximum. If you want to get in on that, I'll have a link in the show notes where you can go and purchase that shirt or hoodies. Uh, There's men's and women's hoodies. And I believe it goes to 3X or 4X. Uh, anyhow, link will be in the show notes on that. I do want to reiterate the podcast is listener supported. It is not sponsor supported. You will never hear on this show a sponsor. You'll never have to hit the 30 second skip button to listen to sponsors. I'd personally rather lose money than lose the integrity of the show satisfying an advertiser. As Ricardo mentioned earlier, I just love to give this thing out to people and do this for an industry that has been good to me. I don't do this for money. In fact, I actually didn't ask for a dime for two years before launching the community. So if you get value from the content coming from this podcast and its outlets in social media newsletters or other areas, then I ask that you please consider supporting the show fiscally by joining the community and getting access to that additional content. Or then you can please take one to two minutes and head over to makersofsport.com slash iTunes and hit the five star and write a review about your experience with the show. Every little bit helps. Every little bit matters. Sharing the show, retweeting the show, leaving reviews. It helps other people discover this show. And we can all help drive this industry forward together with better conversation and really trying to become better professionals. As always, I'll accept likes or ratings on Stitcher SoundCloud or whichever podcast application you happen to be listening in. Lastly, don't forget to sign up for the newsletter at makersofsport.com slash email. Just enter your 
email address there and you will get the show notes and a delivery of a newsletter called Weekend Reads to your inbox. I'm at T. Adam Martin on all social media, including Twitter, Snapchat, and pretty much everywhere else on the interwebs. The show is at Makers of Sport. Until next time, have a good week. Thank you.